But it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to, to praise God with you because God is good all the time, isn't he? Isn't, good God, isn't God good all the time? You know, even when the world feels like it's falling apart around us. And man, how many times have I said that here in 2020 and 2021? Uh, we, we have the steadfast God who is a rock and a fortress in whom we can put our trust and our faith. And I praise, praise him for that. And I'm excited to, to talk about that God today because, you know, we need that God more than ever as everything around us is kind of in disarray right now. And so this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And as you do, I want to, I want to ask you to take a few moments with me to be still and let's go to God and, and, and ask him to bless our time together in his word this morning. And so if you're at home right now, wherever you might be, would you consider maybe just getting on your knees? Or would you consider raising your hands? Or would you consider doing something to be slightly uncomfortable and really just go to God in this time and devote it to him? Let's pray. Most righteous and heavenly Father, today is a day we bring glory to your name. Father, I pray that as I speak, as I, as I share this message that I feel like you've put on my heart, Father, would you, would you speak through me today? Every, every week I come up here, and, and sometimes it's so tempting to, to make this about something I want to say or do or whatever. But Father, I just ask that in this time, would you make sure that the words that come out of my mouth are words that are blessed by you? And Father, for everyone who, who's watching now and who watches in a few hours or in a few days, would you begin to, to soften our hearts? Would you begin to, to take the, the, the blinders off of our eyes and the, the fingers that are in our ears and remove them so that we can hear your word and be shaped and changed by it, Father? I ask that you would bless this time today. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we are in week two of our year-long Read Scripture in 2021 sermon series. And if you're new, or if you're joining us for the very first time today, this is a series that is designed to encourage and to help us grow in understanding God's Word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And so all year long, that's what Lake Merced is doing. We're spending all year taking a little bit of time each day. Uh, Brandon alluded to this in his, in his prayer time about 15 minutes a day, and we're going through our, our Read Scripture app, and uh, I, I find that, that that one little tweak, that one little change to the routine of your life can help your faith and your understanding about God's Word just grow and grow and grow by leaps and bounds. And so I, I pray that you're doing that. I pray that you're enjoying that. And I pray that God's Word is shaping you a little bit more each day as you do you know, in 2013, Barna did some research, <clears throat> and they revealed that only about 20%, or, or one in five Americans, had actually read the entirety of the Bible from start to finish. So if, if you have done that, you're, you're one of a select few, you're one in five. But if you have not done that, man, 2021 is a great year, a fantastic year to achieve that goal. We're still home, we still have time. Let's get into his word. Let's let God word God's Word shape us and change us all the more. 
You know, last week as we kicked off our series, we went back to the, the very beginning. We went to page one of everyone's Bibles, and we looked at the story of creation. That amid all of the wonderful things that God had made, it was, it was humanity, it was mankind, it was you, and it was me that stood out from the rest of creation. Because only humanity was created in God's holy image. God made us. He made us, you and me, in his image. I want you to think about that. It was truly an amazing gift that he gave us. And yet, as we discovered last week, the opening pages of Genesis that ensued involved a myriad of stories of these people who are supposed to be God's God's image bearers, who are supposed to reflect him in all that they say and all that they do. And yet they're, they're not giving glory to him. They're trying to take the glory for themselves. You look at Adam and Eve's story where Adam and Eve were deceived with a promise that they could become like God and they they bit into that promise. Or Noah's story that reveals that in his day that the hearts of humanity were only evil all the time. Or you look at the story of, of, of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 that we talked about and we read of a people with a goal, one goal, And that is to make a name that is great for themselves. That is what they want. Man, how many of us share that goal? Think about that. How many of us share that goal? How many of us have thought to ourselves that, man, we we just want to leave a mark on this world. We want this world to remember us long after we are gone. We want us to be remembered. And so those of us who can often will will donate large sums of money so that a building on this school or, or you know, somewhere might bear our name, or we, we publish research studies so that theories might bear our name, or we try to hit the most home runs in history so that Cooperstown might remember our name. And so what have you dreamed about doing so that your name might be enshrined long after you're gone? Church, the story of Babel should be a story that is entirely relatable to all of us, and yet... God looked down on the hearts of man and he was devastated because as we talked about last week, God's story is about declaring God's glory. God's, never our own. Glory was never supposed to be for us. God created us for his glory. He created us to love us. And and so the heavens declare God's glory and we're supposed to declare God's glory. It's all supposed to be about God's glory. And that's where I want to pick things up this morning because, you know, one of the things I I realized over the years through more and more of adulthood and and life is how much I've learned about God's Word simply by by navigating everyday parts of life, simply by, by adulting, to borrow a modern term. Case in point, the word forbearance. I don't know if you're familiar with this word, but Forbearance is a word that Paul uses uh, much, much later in Romans, but it wasn't a word that I I truly appreciated until I graduated college and I had these embarrassingly large student loans, and all of a sudden the banks came calling and said, hey, Josh, you got to pay those back. Well, I didn't exactly have the money right away to pay those back, but what I learned in that season of life was the the concept of forbearance, the, the restraint from exercising a legal right or enforcing the payment of a debt. There's restraint involved there, that's forbearance. 
So the bank said, hey, Josh, you have two or three years of forbearance from us until we need, us, we need to get paid back. And so that provided me enough time to kind of get my financial feet under me and, and begin to start paying them back. I am so grateful for their forbearance. And so this week, while I read and I studied and I reflected more on God's word, there was another legal or contractual term that kind of surfaced in my mind. And I think this term is going to be critical to understanding today's message. And it's the word contingent. It's the word contingent. I don't know if you're familiar with this word. You know, about a year ago, we started the process of trying to buy a house uh, much closer to San Francisco than we'd live. We were living like 45 minutes away and commuting over every day. And, uh, and one of the things that we were doing is we're, you know, we're trying to buy a house pre-COVID right at the height of the, the housing market and the housing boom. And so we're competing oftentimes with six or eight or 10 or 12 other buyers for this home that we want to get. We're all, we're all wanting the same house. And that means that the rules for buying that house are way, way different from just about anywhere else in the country or certainly in the world. That in order to have a chance at your offer being selected among others, there was one huge thing that you had to do, according to my real estate agent, to make sure that you had a chance. And that was this. You had had to make your offer non-contingent. If you bought a house before, you may know what this means. If you haven't, you may not. But what that essentially meant is that when we presented our offer to buy a home, we were saying that our offer was not conditional. It was not dependent. It was not hinging on anything else. That we would enter into a binding agreement that said there is essentially no way, no possible way that I will not come through on my side of this deal. And so the housing market is like this almost nowhere else in the world, but it is like this here because everywhere else you might make an offer and your offer is one of one. And so you might make a contingent offer that says, yeah, I'm gonna buy your house contingent on me getting financing or contingent on me selling my house first or contingent on me doing any number of things. It's an agreement that says, I will do this if these other things come true first. But a non-contingent agreement says, I will do this, period. Stop right there, full stop. And while you will not find the word contingent in the Bible anywhere, at least not in any translation that I'm familiar with, that concept of of non-contingency or or unconditional agreements becomes a a concept, I think, of paramount importance to us in, in what happens next in God's story. You know, as last week's message ended, as I, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the, the people desiring to build this massive tower, and they have one goal, right? They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And as that part of the story came to a close for reasons unknown to us, we are introduced to a man named Abram. Now, why Abram? We don't really know why Abram. We simply aren't told. But nevertheless, hundreds of years after the flood in Noah, and probably hundreds of years after the Tower of Babel, the Bible invites us into the story of this 75-year-old man named Abram. And God says to him, Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I want you to imagine that. 
Imagine never knowing God. There's no indication that he knew God before this point. Never having a relationship with God. And then, and then suddenly, in your retirement years, he just shows up in your life, the, the maker of all that is, and he tells you to leave your home, to leave your family, to, to go somewhere completely different. Like, what would you do? Imagine this. What would you do if, if tomorrow morning you woke up and God said, I want you, whoever you may be, to move to, like, Siberia? What would you do? But God's not done speaking to Abram. God follows that command with a promise. He says, Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As you reflect on those, those what, three verses there there, there, there are three things that I want you to pay particular attention to in that text that we just read. Number one, Abram was part of God's plan for all people on earth. I'm going to say that again. Abram was part of God's plan for all people on earth. It was never supposed to be about singling out one particular race or one particular family to the detriment of all others. And so in the years that followed, many people would forget and they would lose sight of that reality, but it's true. God was putting something in, in motion that was not for the select few. It was, it was something that was for everyone. Abram was supposed to benefit everyone. Number two, God offers Abram a great name. This is an absolute stark contrast to what happened one chapter earlier in the Tower of Babel where the people desire to make a great name for themselves. It is God who chooses to make Abram's name great, not us. And it is Abram who will receive that great name. But it has nothing to do with his own doing. It has nothing to do with him. And it's entirely, entirely a gift from God, a grace, an undeserved gift from God. And finally, and this is most important today, pay attention to this, God's plans are not contingent. I'm going to say that again. God's plans are not contingent. And I want you to notice, look back at the text in front of you. You will not find an if. You will not find a but anywhere in what God says. He says, I will make, I will bless, I will make, I will bless. He says it over and over and over again. And by the way, if anybody comes against you, I will curse. What God is doing here is he's establishing a covenant with Abram. He's establishing a covenant with Abram. And covenant is a word that, that means something like a promise or something like a contract. But from a, from a biblical perspective, there's a unique but vital facet for us to understand about covenant that centers on relationship. I think Timothy Tennant said it well in an article I read. He said that the purpose of the covenant was to enter into a committed relationship with people and reveal his faithful love. And so he says the fall is rooted in broken relationships. He says a covenant is, in contrast, a relationship which is steadfast, that even in the midst of a sinful world, all of us long for those who are committed to us to be faithful. We long for relationships to not be broken. We long for people to keep their promises. 
And God shows us how this can be done. That's what he's doing right here. He's showing us how to fulfill your promises, your covenants. I think the easiest example that we can point to in our world that many of us would understand is, is the concept of marriage. Or marriage is this covenant which is built on relationship, and it's a relationship that we all agree should not be broken. That is not what marriage is for. It's a relationship which asks both parties to vow, to promise that they will keep their promises. And when those promises aren't kept, the fallout and the pain from that is, is immense. I'm sure all of you have seen or even been through that immense pain in marriage. But what God is doing here that is so incredible, and I want you to really think about this and see this, is that he's making a marriage-level commitment, a, a committed relationship with Abram that is not contingent on Abram. He's making a marriage-level commitment to Abram that is not contingent on Abram. It's almost like walking up to a total stranger and saying like, hey, you are going to be my very best friend in this world. And then like that person has, has no input here, nothing at all. <laughs> like it's just whether you like it or not, you're going to be my very best friend. Like nobody does that. But that's kind of the nature of what God is doing here. But you see, part of our sin condition is that, that broken relationships are, are kind of all we know. That if, if God made his promise contingent on, on Abram's willingness or Abram's ability to keep his side of the deal, man, this whole plan would have fallen through almost from the beginning. So God doesn't do that. He just says, I will. I will. So important. And as we read more, we get some insight perhaps into why God showed up in Abram's life and, and, and not somebody else's life. Because verse 4 says, so Abram went. God says, Abram, go. And Abram went, just as the Lord had told him. And so at 75 years old, this man packed up his life. He grabbed his wife, Sarai. He grabbed his nephew, Lot. And he set out on a journey, not knowing what the future was going to look like or what the future held for him. He was told to go, and he went. You know, it's normal. Uh, for some of us to go in certain stages of life. It's normal for a college kid to grow up and move away and, and go to college. Like college kids do stuff like that all the time. It was a little different when we did that, when my wife and I, Tiffany, did that. Uh, in 2005, Tiffany and I got married, and then three months later, we put all of our belongings onto a moving truck, and we started a pretty long journey to Oklahoma City, where I was going to finish up school. But unlike most other college students who, who go to college for eight or nine months and they're single and then they come home to their parents and to their bedroom and their friends and, and all their childhood homes for the summer, like we weren't doing that. Both of us were married adults now. We were leaving behind our, our childhood. We were leaving behind our home and our, our old lives. And we were venturing off into the un unknown. And I'll never forget that feeling of, of driving down the freeway that morning that we left in our hometown and, and looking around and taking it all in and just recognizing that it was highly likely that we would never be coming home again. It was sort of a surreal feeling that will always be impressed upon my heart. And I'm sure many of you have gone through similar kinds of, of experiences, maybe multiple versions of the same thing. See, the thing is, I did that at 20. And, and you know, Tiff was 21. I, I still had these, this future ahead of me. I still had these hopes and these dreams about what, what our future would look like. We had something to look forward to. It's one thing to do that at 20. But imagine doing that at 75 years old. 
In Genesis chapter 13, God shows up yet again to Abram. He says, Abram, look around from where you are to the, to the north and the south and the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. He says, go and walk. Walk the, the length and, and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Once again, pay attention to the language. I will give. I will make. All with no conditions. All with no contingencies. It's just God saying, Abram, this will happen. In Genesis 15, two chapters later, the, the Lord comes to Abram once more in a vision. And he reiterates his promises again. He says, Abram, look up to the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. He says, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. You won't possibly be able to count all of them. And all of this sounds great, right? All of this makes sense. It's exciting. Like God is getting ready to do something amazing in me. That is until you consider that his wife Sarai is barren. She can't have kids. And they're old. And so you can't really fault Abram for being kind of confused and skeptical about how all this is going to work. Like, I hear you, God, but I, I have no earthly idea how all this is supposed to happen. Like, do we need to help you a little bit? Like, am I supposed to go and, and have kids with a different woman? Like, what am I supposed to do? How is this supposed to work? Because this ain't working, God. And God tells Abram, he says, I want you to go and get some animals. He says, go get a heifer and a goat and a ram and a dove and a pigeon. And he, and he cuts them in half. And he lays these two halves on the ground. And then he causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And there God speaks to Abram once more. He says, Abram, I want you to know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own. And that they will be enslaved and they will be mistreated there but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves and afterward. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. But he says, to your descendants, I give this land. And as these divided animal carcasses lay there on the ground, each, each in two halves, and as Abram lay over there, fast asleep, the text tells us that a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and began to pass between those pieces. And if you're hearing this for the first time and you're confused by any of this, you're certainly not alone. A lot has been written and considered about what all is happening here. And we don't have sufficient time to really get into it, but most scholars agree about the substance of this imagery, this like, why are these carcasses split on the ground? One commentary describes it this way. They say this act is interpreted as an enacted curse. It's, it's, it's as though you're saying, may God make me like this animal dead here if I do not fulfill the demands of this covenant that I'm making. It's a really, really serious thing that, that is agreed upon. And what's fascinating here are the 
the types of animals that are used, that every type of sacrificial animal from the Bible is represented here, which just goes to underscore just how important this moment is. These are not just the, the clean animals, which would eventually be representative of, of Israel or God's chosen people. Pay attention. These include birds of prey. These include unclean animals, which are probably representative of the Gentiles too, or you and me. Those who are not part of the nation of Israel. You know, my studies, I've heard it suggested that this was a common way to make a covenant agreement with somebody in those days. To pass between the carcass of an animal was, was kind of like what we do today when we take a paper with legal jargon and then I sign my name and you sign your name at the bottom and now we have this binding agreement. But I want you to pay close attention to where Abram is in this moment. Where is he? He's laying over there fast asleep. He's sleeping through all of this. He's, he's, he's just laying there. And instead, it's, it's the fire pot and the torch that are representative of God who passes between those pieces. What I want you to see here, church, is that this covenant, this promise that was made had, had nothing to do with Abram who was laying over there fast asleep. God and his plans are not contingent. They're not contingent. The outcome of this moment will not be decided by Abram's righteousness or by his ability to keep his end of the bargain. It's God who will do this. Does that mean that, that Abram doesn't have a role to play? That, that, that he shouldn't or, or doesn't do anything? No, of course not. The Bible is clear on this. Abram did his part. What did he do? He believed. He believed. He trusted. He had faith in the certainty of God's words. It was not Abram's goodness that was commended to him. What was it? Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 in your Bible. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I definitely recommend that you mark this down. What does it say? It says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not what Abram did that made him righteous, church. That's not why God used him. God credited to him righteousness because of his belief and his trust in God. That was Abram's part of this covenant, to believe, to trust what God said would come to fruition. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. Thousands of years later, after Jesus walked on the earth, Paul talks about Abraham or Abram. And he says that this, the promise comes by faith. This is uh, Romans 4, uh, I forget which verse here. But he says that the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. If we have the faith of Abraham, Abraham's our father. And he continues, this is verse 20. He said, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This 
is why it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, James chapter 2 talks about Abraham. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham. Romans 4 talks about Abraham. But in light of last week's message, there was a reason I chose to share this Romans 4 passage. Did you catch it? What did Abraham do that Adam and Eve did not do, that Cain did not do, that those at the Tower of Babel did not do? What did Abraham do? Paul tells us Abram gave glory to whom? Abram gave glory to God. And church, this is so important. I think in understanding why Abram becomes Abraham, or literally the, a word that means father of many, that Abram, from day one, Abram understands from day one who's in charge. He understands who's leading the way. He understands who's making all of this happen. He understands who gets the glory. And so his only job is with open arms and open hands to believe. That's his only job, to believe, yes, Lord. And that is what he does. And I put the focus here this morning rather than on all the other important stuff we could have read over these 20 chapters that we've covered this week. And I did that because I could have talked about all kinds of stuff, but I want you to see the importance of what Abram is doing here. The importance of what Abram's story is showing. That God's plans are not contingent. This wasn't about Abram's goodness. This wasn't about Abram's obedience or any of that stuff. And I'm thankful for that. Because if it was, if the rest of Abram's story shows us anything, it's that he was as broken and as mistake-laden as I am and as you are, and as the rest of us all are. Because here's a man who slept with his wife's servant in order to have a child because God didn't fulfill his promises in, in what seemed like or felt like a reasonable amount of time. Here's a man who lied about his wife being his wife because she was beautiful, and he was afraid that people would kill him and steal her if they knew that she was his wife. And so he gave her away to another man. And he did it twice! twice church before God had to intervene both times and fix his dumb decision here's a man who chose not to pursue and rescue that same wife when she was taken but what happened when his nephew Lot was taken he got his army together and chased him down and rescued him for all of the good that is attributed to Abraham and rightfully so Abraham did amazing things there are still plenty of these Peter moments these foot and mouth dumb things that he does throughout the course of his journey with God. And as we, we read this week, we, we read about Isaac, th- this promised son that God finally told Abraham, I was going to send you. He finally comes. And through Isaac, God renews his promise. God renews his plans that he made to Abraham so many years later or earlier. And he says to Isaac, Isaac, I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. What I want you to see once again in Isaac's story 
is that God's plans are not contingent on Isaac, on his ability to be righteous or any of those things. Because yet again, Isaac is as flawed a man as his father. Isaac does the exact same thing that Abraham did. He also lies about his beautiful wife being his wife and gives him away to the king of the Philistines. Why? Because he's afraid that if he knows it's his wife, then they'll kill him. And just like his dad, God steps in and has to fix his dumb decision. And so next, his son Jacob. He has these two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob is the son of promise that God uses next. A man to whom God said, Jacob, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What do you notice about God's promise to Jacob? Church, it's the same thing. God's plans are not contingent. And once more for that, I'm thankful. Because who was Jacob? Jacob was a man who stole his brother's birthright. He was a man who conspired with his mom to steal his brother's blessing. He was a man who ran away from home as a liar about what his true identity really was. He's a man who got scammed by his uncle and turned around and scammed his uncle back and stole much of his flock. He's a man who, who schemes to essentially bribe his brother, hoping his brother will not be angry with him in their much later reunion that took place in Genesis 32. Church, just like Abraham, both Isaac and Jacob are men of faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that. They are men of absolute faith. But just like Abraham, both men are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. And I illustrate this because we need to see how vital it is that God's plans are not contingent. Because if they were, if they were contingent on righteousness, on ability to, to live life perfectly, man, we would have no hope left, church. I want to ask you this. When you wake up in the morning, you go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror, who do you see? Who do you see there? Do you see that the child of God who bears his glorious image who reflects his glory? Is that what you see when you look in the mirror each day? Or do you believe the lie that Satan tells you each and every day? The lie that constantly tears you down. The lie that constantly tells you that you have no future. That you don't deserve some eternity with God. That you're scum. That you're garbage. That you're trash. That's your refuse. Is that the lie that you believe? Because in our weakest moments, church, I think we all recognize that we all begin to doubt that God would ever want anything to do with us, that he would never want to use us. Like, how could he? We, we know how wretched we are because in those weak moments, when I look in the mirror, what do I see, church? I see a liar. I see a fake. 
I see a man with unclean eyes and unclean lips, a man who's afraid and insecure and overweight and, and argumentative, a man who's cowardly. I see a broken man when I look in the mirror each day. What do you see? Who do you see? And yet, despite all of that, despite everything I see, I know and I believe that despite all my character flaws, all my shortcomings, all the lies that I, might, I may fall victim to from time to time, I see that God's promises hold true, that they are steadfast. And what was true then in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those things are still true to this day. Have you learned this yet? If you have, say it with me. Look to somebody on the couch and say it with them. Church, God's plans are not contingent. In other words, God will not fail to see His redemption plan through because of my brokenness. He will not fail to see His redemption plan through because of my shortcomings. Because way far down the road, what began with Abraham will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus who went to the cross, who had His body broken, who had His blood shed, so that all of those, all of those things that are so flawed in me, that are so flawed in you, that were so flawed in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, might be covered over in Christ's cleansing blood. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says this, and, and I, I kind of hinted at this earlier. Paul says, and this is thousands of years later, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, there's that word again. In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the blood of Christ covers not just my mistakes and not just your mistakes even, but it covers everyone who even came before Jesus. That in his forbearance, we talked about this word at the beginning, in his willingness to show restraint, God allowed Jesus to atone for us all, even Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This was God's plan. And you already know something about God's plans, don't you? God's plans are not contingent. And so the question presented to all of us is the same question presented to Abraham. Do you believe? Do you believe? And if you do, 
Church, the good news, the gospel of Jesus invites you to receive him in baptism. Church, baptism is not about something that you do. It's about something that is done to you. It's something you receive from the Lord. That in baptism, you you are buried with Christ and you are raised again to a new life. And so if the person who you see in the mirror each day is a person who needs rescuing, then just know this and believe. God's plans are not contingent and you Whoever you are, whoever you might be watching right now, you are part of God's plans. The question for you is, will you do like Abraham did? Will you believe and will you trust and put your faith in him today? We invite you to that. We invite you to begin this journey and make a decision for Christ. And if you're ready, would you do one thing for me? Would you get on your email right now, wherever you are, whenever you see this, and write an email to questions at lakemercedchurch.com. That's questions at lakemercedchurch.com. We would love to talk with you and walk with you on that journey of knowing Christ and putting your faith in him. And so as you go into your week this week, remember this. God's plans are not contingent. May God bless you in the week ahead. May you remember God's promises And may you rest in all that God has for you. God bless you, church. Thank you for being here today. We'll see you next week.